this. As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. So do. Now, of course, Paul is the author of the books, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. He's writing to Timothy, who is the, his pupil, who he's raising up in the faith. And he gives a charge here, which is like a command. He gives a charge or a command to Timothy. And I want you to notice what he says in verse number 3. He says, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus. So he wants him to stay at Ephesus. When I went into Macedonia, that... Thou mightest charge some. Now a charge, as I said, is a command. It's a, it's a commandment. That thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Then in verse 4 he says this. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. So do. So then he kind of reaffirms him at the end. So do. As I besought you, that's what I want you to do. As I had already commanded you, that's what I want you to continue to do. And what was the commandment? He wanted him to stay in Ephesus for the purpose of commanding people to teach no other doctrine. He wanted them to teach only what was in the scriptures and nothing else. He wanted them to teach only the practices and the beliefs that had been passed down from Paul and of course the Holy Spirit and you know the things that they were taught in the Old Testament that were going to be retained going into uh, or under the new covenant. But he gives us a little bit more information in verse 4 of what these things are that other people were teaching and trying to creep in with. And I'm going to hit on this here uh, you know, at the end and kind of tie this together. Verse number 4 it says this, Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies. So notice that what he doesn't want them to teach and what he's worried about and what he's warning Timothy to make sure that he preaches against and that we're not teaching these other doctrines is endless genealogies, but he also says this, fables. He says, I don't want you to give heed. I don't even want people listening to. I don't want this to be taught. And what did he, what did he say that it was? Fables. I want you to go to Titus chapter number 1. This is also a letter that's written by Paul. So 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. It's also a letter that's written by Paul, an epistle that's written to a pupil as well, a young oh, uh, preacher boy, if you will, in the faith, and he's giving different commandments unto this man, and he is also warning him. He doesn't want him to allow things to creep into the churches and the areas where he has been sent. I want you to look at verse number 13. He says this, This witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. So again, he wants him to go there and he wants to correct people. He wants people to be rebuked and he wants them to be rebuked sharply. And he says, that they may be sound in the faith. Now watch verse 14, a very similar statement. He says this, Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. So notice that, these Jewish fables and commandments of men, what do they do? They turn from the truth. They are polar opposite than what the scriptures teach. They're different than what the Bible actually teaches. Now in 1 Timothy chapter number 1, Paul said something very similar. He gave a commandment that you teach no other doctrine than what? Of course, than what the truth is, than what scripture teaches, than what the Bible says and what Paul had taught Timothy. Well, that's the same thing here. He only wants him to teach the truth. And he wants him to stay away from what? Fables. 
But specifically here, what does he call those fables? Now, in 1 Timothy 1, he just said fables. But what type of fable is it? The Bible says Jewish fables. Jewish fables, it says. Not giving heed to Jewish fables. And then it says this, and commandments of men. The title of the sermon this morning is Christianity is not pagan. Christianity is not pagan. Now I'm going to be going through a few different uh, you know, uh, attacks that people will make on Christianity and elements and practices of, of modern day Christianity today. You know, particularly things that we would be attacked for that people will bring up repeatedly and say, hey, these, these practices are pagan. This is paganism. And this came from, you know, uh, uh, you know the Roman you know, pagans or Greek mythology. And I'm going to go through these different things. You know, Babylonian paganism. These are all different, and these, these types of claims and stuff recirculate all the time. And if you go knocking on doors, or if you watch you know, videos on YouTube, or if you speak to different people maybe at your work that are you know, uh, getting into Christianity or studying the Bible, and they have other influences, they'll oftentimes be influenced by these types of teachings. That supposedly Christianity has been corrupted today. And that all the churches that claim to be Christians... They have all of these different, you know, uh, uh, teachings that are leavened in the churches and that these are pagan teachings. Now, this goes back, and I preached a sermon, you know, about maybe a year and a half ago on the subject of why we do what we do. So, this is going to be very important for that reason. We need to be able to give a defense of why we do what we do. We need to be able to give a defense and understand and know why we practice Christianity the way that we do. I want you to think about this. There are a lot of denominations out there. There's Catholic, there's Presbyterian, there's Episcopal churches. There, I mean, you could just Methodist, you could just go on and on. Lutherans, there's so many different types of churches and they all do things differently. Why are we right and why are they wrong? How, how do you know for a fact that we should be doing and practicing things the way that we do? Well, you need to be able to prove that and show that from Scripture. And so we're going to be going through different, the different practices that we have that oftentimes people refer to as pagan. And the very first thing that I want, to, I want to hit on this morning, I want you to go to Acts chapter number 20. Acts chapter number 20. The very first thing that I want to hit on this morning is the, the, the claim that the fact that we meet on Sunday is pagan. The fact that we meet on Sunday, many people will, will try to claim that you know, having church or meeting on Sunday is because we are worshiping the sun god and that that is paganism. Now I do want to give a disclaimer in the very beginning of this sermon as well that I'm not defending the Roman Catholic Church. You know, people will try to conflate Christianity, Baptist, Biblical Christianity with the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is pagan. The Roman Catholic Church came from paganism and Roman paganism and they, they still have this remnant and vestiges of serving the Greek gods and the veneration of Mary. All of that, Lent, all of those things are pagan. You know, we don't practice those things and anything that is pagan, we reject. And that's why we reject the Roman Catholic Church. They, you know, that's why we reject their practices and their teachings that are pagan. So Roman, Catholic, Roman Catholicism and Biblical Baptist, Biblical Christianity are not the same thing. So I'm not up here defending practices of the Roman Catholic Church. I'll be the first to tell you that the Roman Catholic Church is a pagan institution. They came from Roman paganism. That's why they're called the Roman Catholic Church. They're just, basically they just tried to merge some of Christianity 
It was a political move that Constantine made and just try to make it look like they're kind of Christian just to appease two crowds. But then it stuck and then now you have you know, what we see today in the Roman Catholic Church. That's why not, you know, so many things that they do is not mentioned in Scripture. But everything that we do, we derive from Scripture. And if we have some sort of practice that is evil and wrong, we need to cast it away. So we need to prove all things. We need to not just blindly practice certain things. So the first thing that we're going to deal with, as I said, is, you know, is it wrong to meet on Sundays? And why do we meet on Sundays? You need to be able to give an answer for that. If someone came to you and said, hey, you know, meeting on Sundays is pagan. That's what, you know, uh, uh, you know paganism has done for many years. And this is what people will say. They'll claim that the reason why we meet on Sundays is because that Constantine made a decree that, that Sunday would be the day where Christians would come together and meet. And it was because they worshipped the sun god, right? And when you're coming to church on Sunday, you may not know it, but you're really coming to church and you're worshipping the sun god. Now... I'm going to show you from Scripture that that's ridiculous, but even in, in uh, uh, you know, addition to that, just historically, if we look at where this claim comes from, they're basically just looking at the day. Now, the, day, the name of our day, I don't know if you are aware of this or not, but the, the name of the day, Sunday, which is the first day of the week, that comes from the name of the sun god. That is where that name comes from. But it's not only that one day. It's not like that one day was set apart for the sun god. And then all the other days of the week are just regular days. No, every single day of the week. So the Greeks and the Romans, they worshipped, you know, just like all the pagans throughout the Bible did, they worshipped the host of heaven. They, they worshipped all of the different, you know, uh, uh, the planetary system. Do you, know where the, do you know where Monday comes from? Do you know what particular planet that that would, or, or uh, uh, object in the sky, host in, in the sky that that comes from? The moon. So you have Sunday comes from the sun. Monday comes from the moon. Uh, Tuesday comes from Tyre, which was a god that they worshipped. Wednesday comes from, uh, his name. It's, it's wooden basically. It's, uh, I don't know how they pronounce it, but it's spelled like how we spell the word wooden. Thursday comes from Thor. Friday comes from Friggin. I'm not saying, you know, Frickin or Friggin. It's Friggin, F-R-I-G-G-E-N. These are all gods and goddesses that they would give names to the planetary elements in the sky and they would worship them and then they named the days of the week after them. And that's the calendar that we have today. So it was originally the Julian's calendar and then Constantine altered it and he did make changes to it. That's a fact. But what I want to point out to you is every day of the week, every single day of the week is named after... A, uh, that we have in the United States of America, Western culture, our calendar, right? Every day of the week is named after some sort of god or goddess that is, you know, the day, uh, uh, some sort of planetary, you know, uh, 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 object in the sky. Every last one of them. So it doesn't matter which day that you would meet. That's my point. I want you to look with me at Acts chapter number 20, verse number 7, and I'm going to show you why we actually meet on Sunday. Look at Acts chapter number tw 20, <coughs> excuse me. Acts chapter number 20, verse number 7, it says this, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them 
ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And then it goes on and on to explain more about what took place when Eutychus falls and, and dies and Paul brings him back to life. But I want you to notice that it gives you a very specific uh, 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 detail there. It tells you that they come together. Now what is that when they come together? What is that called? That's an assembly. That's a congregation. And what do we refer to that as? That's church service, isn't it? That's church. That's what that is. They came together. And what did they do? They came together, it says, to break bread. And then it says, and he preached unto them. And it says, ready to depart on the morrow. And which particular day does it tell you that they came together on? The first day of the week. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 16. 1 Corinthians chapter number 16. <clears throat> this actually comes up a few times in the New Testament. We're just going to look at two of them. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter number 16. And this is actually Paul writing to the church at Corinth. He's giving them instructions on how to you know, operate within the church, how the operations should be. He's talking about how to take up offerings and things along those lines. So he's talking about when they're actually having church service. When they're taking up offerings, when they're gathered together and people are taking up offerings. So he's talking about church service itself. Look at verse number 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. So he's saying in the same way that I gave instructions to the church at Galatia, right? Of course we have the letter to the Galatians, those that lived in Galatia or a part of the church in Galatia. He said in the same way I want you to do it. Now look at what the instructions are. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store. So he's saying you need to have it with you. As God hath promised him that there... I'm sorry, prospered him. As God hath prospered him that there be no gatherings when I come. So once you notice in verse number 2, he makes a specific statement that when they come together on the first day of the week... Upon the first day of the week, when they do their meetings, when they do their assembly or their congregation, upon the first day of the week, he says, let every one of you, uh, let every one of you lay by him in store. So you need to bring your money with you or your offerings that you plan on giving. Go ahead and bring that on the first day of the week. And he says, as God hath prospered. So we didn't just pull this out of thin air even. The reason why Christians today meet on Sunday is because that Sunday on our calendar is which day of the week? It's the first day of the week. So if someone ever tries to bring up to you, oh, that's pagan. You're worshiping the sun god or the sun goddess. You know, you don't have any reason why, you know, you have no idea why you meet on the first day of the week or why you meet on Sunday. They would never mention the fact that it's the first day of the week. Now, when, when Constantine made that particular day the day that Christians, he decreed that that day would be a day for Christianity and that Christians would come together, he was basing that upon the fact that Christians were already meeting on the first day of the week. That just so happened to be the name of that day, Sunday, because they had already had all of these, you know, uh, different days of the week laid out and that these days were named after, you know, the different planetary hosts and that they were worshiping them and they had given them gods as if they were gods or goddesses. But that was already the day that Christians were meeting. You can look throughout the book of Acts. It happens a couple other times that they are coming together. They are gathering together and meeting on the first day of the week. And in our calendar, if we were to read the Bible and see, oh, that's when Christians gathered together. That's always the first day of the week. 
we were to try to do things biblically and have biblical practices, do you know what conclusion we would come to? We would come to the conclusion that we need to gather on Sunday. Now, these types of people that attack these things, do you know what they're always you know, trying to purport? Do you know what they're always advocating? Jewish fables. Because do you know what day that they think that we should be meeting on? Every time. Every single time somebody says that you're a pagan because you're meeting on, on Sunday and you're, you're worshiping you know, the sun god, whether you know it or not. Do you know what day that they say that we should be meeting on? Saturday. They say that we should be meeting on Saturday. Why? Because they say, well, Saturday is the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is the day that we are supposed to be you know, coming together and congregating. Go to Colossians chapter number 2. New Testament Christianity does not meet on Saturdays. New Testament Christianity meets on the first day of the week. Now, do you know why they meet on the first day of the week? It's because that's the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's why. That's the reason why we meet on the first day of the week. If you go to John chapter number 20, if you go to Matthew chapter number 28, the Bible tells you that Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And do you know what the Christians were doing that very day? When he rose from the dead, they were gathered together in a meeting. They were, you know, obviously at that time they were discouraged. They were, you know, uh, uh, praying with one another. They were having a congregational meeting, an assembly. I'm sure that there was preaching going on every time they meet on the first day of the week there is. And from that day forward, they met on the first day of the week, which just so happened to be Sunday. That that's what we call that day. And it's the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's why in New Testament Christianity we meet on the first day of the week. And it's just referred to as Sunday. So Colossians chapter number 2. Colossians chapter number 2 is where I want you to turn to. Now, what these people try to purport is Jewish fables. These people that always want to look at New Testament Christianity today and say that New Testament Christianity is pagan, they always are these, these type of Hebrew roots Judaizers. And basically what they want to do is they supposedly want to bring you back into Old Testament practices. Different Old Testament rituals and traditions and things that are going on. And it doesn't only stop with just, hey, we need to be meeting on Saturday instead of Sunday. They have this big long list of things that they say Christianity you know, uh, practices today that is pagan. And every single time when they say that this is pagan, it ends up being, of course, a New Testament teaching. But it's something that they're trying to dismiss from the New Testament because they want to go back and do something in the Old Testament. You know, they want to go back and do some sort of practice in the Old Testament. Like in that case, you know what they want to do? They want to go back and they want to meet on the Sabbath day is what they say. Well, the Bible's real clear that the Sabbath day has been done away. It was done away in Christ. It was a shadow of things to come. I want you to look at Colossians chapter number 2. Look with me at verse number 14. It says this, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Now notice the ordinances are blotted out. They're no longer uh, in effect. <clears throat> which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore... So because they've been done away, because they have, you know, he took them out of the way, and they're blotted out, and they were contrary to us, and we're, we're happy about that, is what he's teaching. This is a good, positive thing that they've been done away. He says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day 
or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So notice that those things were just shadows. They were figures. They were pictures of things to come. The book of Hebrews also refers to this, and it talks about how these things are done away until the time, you know, they were just pictures or shadows of things to come until, you know, uh, the Reformation took place. That's the Reformation from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. The Old Covenant in the Old Testament had a lot of rituals, had a lot of ordinances, had a lot of practices that were just meant to be pictures of things to come. They were just meant to be pictures of different things and, uh, uh, that, that ultimately pointed to Christ. Notice it said that the body is of Christ. So the shadow, uh, the Sabbath day, pictured the Lord Jesus Christ coming. And I'm not going to go into all the details and all the teachings of the typology behind that. But notice that it says, let no man therefore judge you. Now, people will try to twist this and try to say, well, that means, you know, let no man therefore judge you because you practice it. Don't let people look down upon you because you practice it. He, that makes zero sense in this context. Because if you read verse number 14, it says blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. What does it mean to blot something out? It means it's not in existence anymore. It means it's not in effect anymore. It means you're not practicing it in, anymore. That's what that means, that they're done away. That's what that means. And what are the things that he mentions that are done away? He says, meat, drink, respect of an holy day, the new moon, or the Sabbath days. That's why he says, let no man therefore judge you. Because you know what was going on? In all of the churches, Judaizers, these Jews who were false brethren were trying to sneak in and try to force them to do the practices of the Old Testament. They were trying to teach this leaven and this false doctrine of, hey, you need to be circumcised. Hey, you need to, you know, you need to follow the holy days. You need to follow the new moons. You need to be practicing and observing the Sabbath days. But Paul tells them, let no man therefore judge you. Why? Because they had been blotted out. That interpretation makes no sense at all. But that's how they try to interpret it if they want to still have people uh, you know, observing the Sabbath day. Now, what day was the Sabbath day? It was the seventh. It was the last day of the week. What day of the week does that fall on in our calendar? Saturday. Now, I don't know if you've made the connection already, but Saturday is also named after a false god. Saturn is named after, of course, the, the planet Saturn. And there is a god, a false god, that is associated with that planet as well. So there, there are no days of the week that are uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, excluded or immune to this. Every last day, so it wouldn't matter which day. So this is this, this false hypocritical attack to say, Oh, you meeting on Sunday, you're worshiping the sun god. Well, I could say that you're worshiping the Saturn God just as well as you could say that to me. The reason why we at Valiant Baptist Church meet on the first day of the week is because that's what the disciples did. And we are disciples of Christ. And we look at them as our example. We look at the scripture and what they did. And Paul met on the first day of the week. So, so do we. It was good enough for Paul. It was good enough for the apostles. It's what Paul instructed all of the disciples at that time to do. He said, just like I told the church at Galatia, just like I told you, upon the first day of the week, let every man lay up beside him and store how God hath prospered him. Notice that when they get together on the first day of the week. So why do we meet upon the first day of the week? Because that's the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that became the day when New Testament Christians came together and congregated and 
held the New Testament assembly or church services. That's why we do. So there's reasons why in Scripture that we do these things. We don't just meet on, on, on Sunday because, you know... Uh, Constantine was a pagan and he ordered the Roman Catholic Church to, to do so at that time and made a decree and then everybody's been doing it since then. We, you know, we were never, our heritage does not, we're not Protestants. Our heritage does not go back to the Roman Catholic Church. Protestants, all of these other churches, every church, every church denomination besides Baptist would be considered Protestants. Every one of them which comes from the word protest, which is saying that they protested the Catholic Church and then they came out of the Catholic Church because they disagreed with it. That's why all of the other church styles look like Roman Catholics. Every other one of them. Their practices are almost identical to Roman Catholic uh, practices. Because they were... Because Roman Catholic Church was where they came out of. We didn't get that from the Roman Catholic Church. Baptists are Anabaptists and they always and were they were never a part of the Roman Catholic Church and always were against the Roman Catholic Church. We were not you know picking up their practices. The reason why the Roman Catholic Church in the first place meets on the first day of the week is because that's when all of Christianity before the Roman Catholic Church came into great power uh, and, and actually uh, uh, you know had vast influence. There were Christians all over and they were meeting on the first day of the week because that's when Scripture told them to meet on the first day of the week. That was the example that the disciples and the apostles set. That was the command that was given in 1 Corinthians chapter number 16. So why do we meet on the first day of the week? Because the apostles did in the New Testament. Because Scripture teaches to meet on the first day of the week. That's why. We do not celebrate the Sabbath in the New Testament any longer. It's been done away. It was just a figure or a picture of things to come. And we are not to allow people to judge us because we don't practice those things because they have been blotted out. I want you to go with me now. The next thing we're going to deal with, which is you know, probably, I would say not, not probably, it is certainly uh, the most important uh, subject that we're going to talk about. I want you to go to Acts chapter number 4. Acts chapter number 4. So this group of, of uh, Judaizers, or these Hebrew roots type people that want to try to take us back to, as they say, the Hebrew roots, you know, the messianic roots of, you know, where Christianity truly came out of. They always want to attack the name of Jesus. They always want to attack the name of Jesus. And this is the most, most demonic and blasphemous thing that they purport and that they spew out of their mouths. This is a very, very, very big deal. And let me go ahead and make this statement that if someone does not like and, dis and, and they despise and they... And let's say... I'm talking about English speakers. I'm talking about people from America that are English speakers. If they despise, if they look down upon, if they degrade and they do not like the name of Jesus, I can promise you that that person is not saved. I can tell you 100% that that person is not saved. I want you to look at Acts chapter number 4 verse number 12. Acts chapter number 4 verse number 12. The Bible says this. Neither is there salvation in any other... For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I want you to notice that the Bible says that there isn't salvation in any other, other than who? It's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is no other name under heaven that a person could be saved by. And what name is that in the English language? 
Of course, when we read our King James Bible, it is the name of Jesus. Now, we believe that the King James Bible is perfect and pure. God promised to preserve his word. He promised that he would preserve it unto all generations. You know, he told Isaiah, My words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, seed from henceforth, saith the Lord, and forever. So God promised that his word would be preserved. This is why Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter number 4 that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Notice every word. So what does that mean that we must have today? Every word. And we have every single word in the King James Bible. Psalm chapter number 12 is the promise where God promises that he's going to preserve his word. And he says, from this generation and forever. God promised to preserve his word forever. From the time that it was pinned down, he preserved it. And we have it in the King James Bible. And the name that the King James Bible uh, has for us, and teaches is Jesus. And that is the name that an English speaker is going to be saved by. That is the name of God. That is the name of God manifest in the flesh. And if we're going to go door to door and get people saved, we're going to preach to them the gospel, they have to call upon the name of Jesus. Now, I want you to turn with me to... I want you to go quickly. You go ahead and go to Philippians chapter number 3. And as I said, this is always the, the Judaizers that are trying to attack the name of Jesus. It's always the Judaizers. And one of the things that they say is, they say that we, it must be Yeshua. And they have two variations of this. Yahashua. Some people will say Yahashua. And some people will say Yeshua. Now, I personally think that it is, it is, it is very probable that the name Yeshua was very, very similar, because you know you can't know 100%, but was very similar to how it was pronounced and, and, and uh, what the enunciation was, you know, of Hebrew. Now, of course, Hebrew became a dead language, and they reinstituted the language, studied it, and tried to revive the language, but you can't, you can't know exactly how things were pronounced. But when we look at our Old Testament in English, and we study out the name of that, that is the name of Jesus in the Old Testament, we see that it is Jeshua and Jehoshua. That, those are the variations of the name which is Jesus in the New Testament. That's what we see in the Old Testament. And uh, one of the things that these people will say is, these, these Hebrew roots type people, these Judaizers, what they'll try to say is that, is that you can't translate the name. The name is, it is Yeshua or Yehoshua, and you can't translate the name. Well, I'm going to show you from Scripture that that is a lie. And that is not what the Bible teaches. If somebody ever tries to tell you, oh, you, you can't translate it accurately. It has to be in the original languages. And even Islam teaches this about their holy book. That you have to have it in the original language or you don't have it at all. It can't be translated. Well, Revelation chapter number 9, verse number 11 says this. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. Now, that right there is just game over. So what we see there is the writer who is writing in Greek, because we know that the New Testament manuscripts that we have, 
They go back to Greek. We have 6,000 of them. There's very few in other languages. That's the language that was spoken by those that were living in the region uh, of, of where the Bible was written. That was the, the mass language. Of course, they spoke other languages as well, but that was the, the primary language at that time of the world because the Greek uh, Empire, they spoke Greek. Then the Roman Empire conquered them, and they also kept that same language, which was Greek. But that's besides the point. In the New Testament here in Revelation chapter number 9, verse number 11, we have the writer, the author, the Holy Spirit validating, validating the, the name in Hebrew while he's writing in Greek, but then also for us translating that name and giving us and validating that same name in Greek. Proving that what? Proving that you can have an accurate translation of a name in one language and then translate it to another language. Because he told you what it was. Obviously it's true. So he was able to give you the name in Hebrew and he was able to give you the name in Greek, wasn't he? Now, furthermore, we have the New Testament written in Greek. We have the New Testament repeatedly quoting the Old Testament scriptures. There, there, there are quotations from the Old Testament. Well, the Old Testament was not written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. So do you know what the, the, the author of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of, you know, all of Paul's letters, James, 1 Peter, all of the authors of the New Testament had to do every single time they wanted to quote the Old Testament? They had to translate it from Hebrew and then write it down in Greek. So if you don't believe that you know the words of from one language cannot be accurately translated, and this is preposterous in the first place, then you don't believe that the New Testament is accurate in the first place. You believe that there are tons of quotations from the Old Testament that are inaccurate, which is complete foolishness and nonsense. Furthermore, which is probably, which is a better point than that because this is a biblical authority point. In the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter number 2, you have the disciples and the apostles gathered together and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And you know what happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon them and they begin to preach God's word. But they're not, they're not preaching in Hebrew. The Bible tells you that they're preaching in 17 different languages. They preach in 17, if you count them up. You know, he says the dwellers of Mesopotamia and Cappadocia and Cyrene. And then he just goes through all of these different languages. Like, in it's 17 if you actually count the list up in Acts chapter number 2. 17 different languages where they're preaching. And do you know what it says at the end of Acts 2? That 3,000 people got saved. So you know how they got saved? They got saved in a different language. They were preaching to them in their mother tongue. They heard the word of God in their own language... It wasn't Hebrew. It tells you it wasn't Hebrew. And they heard the Word of God. And you know what the Holy Spirit did? It translated the Word of God accurately, showing that, the, uh, uh, that words can be translated accurately, that the Word of God specifically can be translated accurately into other languages. And not only that, this makes it even worse for this person because, you know, the Hebrew roots type person that is, because what specifically are they attacking and saying that can't be translated? The name of Jesus. That's what they're saying. It must be Yeshua or Yahashua. You can't translate names. People say this stupidity all the time. Sometimes they'll say, oh, you can translate other words, but you can't translate names. Well, what did Acts 4.12 say? Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If someone gets saved, what do they get saved by? I realize the gospel, but what does salvation come through? 
comes through Jesus Christ. You have to call upon the name of the Lord, like it says in Romans 10, 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. So do you know what that tells me? When I read Acts chapter number 2, and these people are being preached to in all of these other languages, and then they get saved by someone preaching to them in these other languages, do you know what they're, they're doing? They're preaching to them the name of Jesus in a different language. Because the name Jesus, of course, can be translated. It can be translated. Now, the name Jesus in the New Testament is the name Joshua in the Old Testament. It's the name Joshua. When you look in Hebrews chapter 4, and we went over this you know, fairly recently, in Hebrews chapter number 4, and you also look in Acts chapter number 7, you'll notice the name Jesus is used. But it's not talking about Jesus Christ. It's talking about Jesus of the Old Testament. Jesus that came after Moses. And you know who that is? That's who we know as Joshua because we know him as his name that we read in the Old Testament, which is his Hebrew to English name. But when that name goes from Hebrew to Greek, it becomes the name Jesus. And when we see the name Jesus in the New Testament, that is the same name as the name Joshua. That is what that is. It's that simple. And people, you know, what people try to do oftentimes is, these, these people that try to say, oh, the name Jesus is pagan. Do you know what they say that the name Jesus actually is? Zeus. That's what they claim. That Jesus is actually Zeus. And I looked it up yesterday. I spent some time last night of their, in looking at their evidences. And do you know what they have? Number one, they have... They're like, look at this sculpture of Zeus. And then look at this picture of Jesus. It's like, you have, that doesn't even deserve a response. It is so stupid. It is so stinking ridiculous. Now, the pictures of Jesus are false in the first place. And some guy just made up the, this sculpture of Zeus because he never existed. He's not real. And you know what it probably is? That that's what all Greco-Western you know, Europeans look like. Because newsflash, I don't know if you're aware of this from history and genealogies, but those that settled in Europe are the same, they're of the same line of like Byzantine, of people that lived in the Greek Empire. That's called Western civilization. Everyone that ended up living up in Europe, they were those that came from Greek, and they were the Romans basically, and the Greeks, and then they migrated and settled in Europe. So that's why when you look at Greek, you know, uh, 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 pictures and paintings and sculptures, they look like Europeans because they're of the same ancestry. So where, is, where did Zeus come from? Western civilization. Where did the false depictions of Jesus come from? Western civilizations. They're both false. Neither one of them are true and real. That doesn't prove anything about the enunciation or the etymology of the name Jesus. How stupid can you possibly be? But they really think that this is a good proof. Completely moronic. Then their other proof is the... Uh, the pronunciation of the names. Look at the names. They're so similar. Zeus, Jesus. Actually, they're not that similar, number one. But number two, that doesn't prove anything. That doesn't prove anything. Do you know the word uh, uh, humorous? I just used this word with Jessica the other day. We spoke about this, so this is why it's in my mind. It's a perfect example. If I say that someone tells me a joke and I say, that is humorous. What do I mean? What does the definition of that word mean? It's funny. Right? Do you know what the bone that goes from your elbow to your shoulder is? This long bone right here, do you know what that bone is called? Humerus. That's what it's called. 
Now they sound alike, right? They're spelled even somewhat similar. But they didn't come from the same... If you study the word, I looked it up because that was just a word that came up. They don't have the same etymology and they didn't even come from the same place. They're not the same word and one did not come from the other. Sometimes words just have similar, somewhat similar enunciations. And Zeus and Jesus are not even that similar. They're not even that close. But, but that's besides the point. We know that the name Jesus is the Old Testament name Joshua. We know that. You're just ignorant of basic facts when you start saying these stupid things. And oftentimes, that's who it is. It's these types of people that have just watched a couple YouTube videos. Anybody who falls into this type of Hebrew roots garbage, it's always people getting it off the internet. Because over the past 10 to 15 years, this stuff is just continually recirculated. People loved it. Hey, quit messing with that now, Elijah. Go sit down and wait. You got to go to the bathroom? Then wait over there. When they walk out, you can go. It'll, it'll just, this kind of crap will just keep recirculating over and over and over and over again. And this, it's just, it's ridiculous claims. It's stupid and it's ridiculous. The name Jesus is the Old Testament name, Joshua. And it even translates that way to the point of where the guy Joshua from the Old Testament is mentioned in the New Testament by the name Jesus. He's called Jesus in the New Testament. You have to be totally ignorant of the Bible to not know that. I read through the Bible three times. You know, three times when I was like 22 would have been about the time when this happened. And I noticed that because it, it bothered me. I wanted to figure out why this took place. And I was just ignorant of it. But it, it took three times or two or three times before I actually noticed that. And I'm like, man, this actually isn't talking about Jesus Christ. Why is this here then? There's another guy in the New Testament called Bar-Jesus. Bar means son of. So this guy's the son of Jesus. There was another guy who lived in the generation before who we know is Jesus Christ, right before him. So it would have been like Mary and Joseph's generation that was named Jesus. Do you know what his name was? Joshua. It's the same name but in Greek. That's what the name of Jesus is. So it's total stupidity to say that all the name Jesus came from Zeus. You're a moron. And you're not saved. If someone degrades denigrates, mocks, disparages the name of Jesus. You're not saved. Do you know why? Because there's none other name given, un, given, there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It is the name above all names. Look at Philippians chapter number 2. This is, a, this is the biggest you know, attack where people say, oh, this is paganism. You're worshiping a Greek god when you say when you say that uh, you're, you're serving Jesus. That's not his name. We have to call him Yeshua. You don't speak Hebrew. And people that speak Hebrew, when they hear you say Yeshua, you sound like an idiot. Just like when you hear people speak Spanish, that, that, or speak English, and Spanish is their main language, how do they sound? They sound goofy, don't they? Just like if I were to try to speak Spanish, right? So what you have is you have these, these, these just, you know, you know, completely, you know, these pale-faced white people who grew up in chair, on Cherry Blossom Subdivision, who are watching YouTube videos, and they're going around calling Jesus Yeshua. You sound like a moron. You're not Hebrew. You don't know anything even about true Hebrew culture. His name is Jesus. That is his name. When you translate it from, from, uh, uh, from Greek into Anglican English, it became Jesus because the I sound, that I letter in Greek that you've maybe seen before, that started to have the J sound. 
Languages change throughout time. Like in the Old Testament, when we're reading Scripture, it goes from Nebuchadnezzar to Nebuchadrezzar. That's because there's a change in the, in the language that they were using just in those few 400 years. In those few hundreds of years. So it's, 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 it's complete stupidity, but it's demonic when people attack the name of Jesus. It's evil and it's blasphemous. Look at how important the name of Jesus is. The name of the Savior. Look at how important the name of, of the Savior is. Look at verse number 7 in, in Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I want you to notice how important the name of Jesus is. He has a name that's above any other name. Any name that has ever been spoken, any name that has ever been uttered off anyone's lips, the name of Jesus is far greater. He gave him a name. And it's so great that at that name, every knee will bow to that name specifically and every tongue will confess the name of Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches. So when you see people attacking the name of Jesus, saying that it's pagan, that is wicked. Because oftentimes, you know what these people do? They have a totally different Jesus. And that's why they're saying, yes, you are. These English-speaking people I'm talking about. Now, if a person lives in Israel, and that is their first language, and you know, when they read the Bible, they read Yeshua. That's a totally different story. That's their language. And that's who, when they think of, you know, he of the Bible, the Christ, it's Yeshua, right? But when you have these English-speaking people, do you know every single time when you dig deeper, and it's not a coincidence, you can tell, like, you just reject the Bible. You're just rejecting Christianity, you're just trying to reject Christianity and cling on to this, this Hebrew roots, Judaizing, Old Covenant type of garbage. And, they, and you notice when you start talking to them, they have a totally different Jesus. And you know what else they have every single time? They have a totally different gospel every single time. That's not a coincidence. It's because they've heard the name Jesus. They've heard about the gospel and the gospel of Jesus Christ in their mother tongue. And in their language that they know, and they know and have heard of the real Jesus of the Bible, and they rejected it, and they wanted something else, and they sit there and they criticize the name Jesus, which is the name in their mother tongue. The name of the Christ, the true name that has been translated into our actual legitimate language. That's why these types of people do that. It's this rebellious type of spirit that people will have. Now, that, of course, is the worst of all of them. You can see some Christians get caught up in some of this other stuff, but the, when they start attacking the name of Jesus, and they get so deep into it where they hate the name Jesus, they despise the name Jesus, you have to call him this, you have to call him that, you dig deep on these people, and every time it's very obvious that you just hate Jesus. You just hate the man Jesus. That's, what, that's what's going on here. And you just want to make some other you know, Messiah that you like and that you agree with. Now, the next point that I want to go over is, uh, I want you to go to Revelation chapter number 20. I'm going to fly through this point because I have one other point after this as well. 
is the point of the immortality of the soul. So these are all things that people will say, oh, this is a pagan teaching of Christianity. You may not be aware of this, but this is, these are all the ones I'm going over today are very popular. Every last one of the ones that I'm going over today, you as a Christian meeting on Sundays, people say, oh, you're worshiping the sun god. We saw that's the first day of the week. Saturday is also named after, uh, uh, you know, I can't help what my calendar is. You know, that's stupid, right? Uh, second, we saw the name Jesus. Of course, that's the name which is above every name. You know, that is the name of the Savior, right? And people say, oh, that's pagan. No, it's not. It's the name Joshua translated from, you know, Hebrew to Greek, and then it's changed over time into English, and it's the name Jesus as we know it today. That is the name of the Savior and of what uh, the Bible teaches. Now, they are the ones that say, hey, you teach the immortality of the soul. So what does it mean to be immortal or the immortality of the soul? It means that you, know, you believe that the soul never dies. Now, that is what's called a misnomer because this is what they say, right? It means that that's a false label, that people are a misnomer. Nomer like nomination means like name, right? So a misnomer means a false name or a false label. They're calling you something false that's not true because we do not believe in the immortality of the soul. We do not believe that the soul just can never die, right? It's because they don't understand what death is in the Bible. That's the problem here, and that's why they give this, this uh, uh, false you know, label or misnomer, if you will. They don't understand what death actually means. They believe that death equals, or that, uh, let's say this, life equals consciousness, and that death equals you know, no consciousness, that you're just unconscious, right? That's what these people believe, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you can be dead and be conscious and be alive and awake and alert and know what's going on around you. The Bible talks about you know, how we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Talking about our soul being dead, right? But I want you to look at Revelation chapter 20. I want you to look with me at verse number 12. It says this, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Now watch this. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and, the de and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. So I want you to notice there that the dead are standing, and the dead are being judged. They're not, they don't have like angels holding them while they're dead and unconscious. No, they're standing there. They're standing before God and they're awake and they're alert and they're being judged. Right? They know what's going on. They're conscious. Right? They know where they are. They're alert and they're awake. But do you know what they're called? Dead. They're referred to as dead. Now, as I said, we're, we as Christians, uh, biblical Christians, we will be called you know, uh, 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 or, or given this false misnomer that, hey, you believe in the immortality of the soul. That's not true. That's not true. You just don't understand how the soul dies and what it means to be dead. This person right here, the Bible teaches, is dead. The Bible says that these people that are being judged, that they are dead. But guess what they're doing? They're standing before God. The Bible teaches that the dead are in hell. I want you to go to Luke 16. Go to Luke chapter number 16 and look at this. It's a major misunderstanding on these people's parts where they try to accuse the Bible of, oh, you know, the immortality of the soul, that's a pagan teaching. That came from, you know, the Greeks. 
where they believed in, you know, uh, uh, I can't Hades, and, and where that's where people would go and they would just read books, right? And they'll try to, you know, find, you know, uh, all these connections with other pagan teachings. They'll try to say, oh, that's no. I'm going to show you that the Bible teaches this. So first off, I wanted you to understand the definition of dead. These people are dead according to the Holy Spirit, according to God and the Bible, but they were standing there. They were standing there and they're standing before God and they're being judged by God. Look at Luke chapter number 16. Look at verse number 19. There was a certain rich man who was, who, which was, I'm sorry, which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a, a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar, what's it say? Died. That the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Okay? The rich man also died and was buried. Now, according to the person that would say, hey, you believe in the immortality of the soul. That person, and let me tell you what they believe in. They believe in the false doctrine of soul sleep. That's what they're saying. That they believe that the soul is inseparable from the body and that the soul is just your life and that when you die, it just, you just go unconscious. Right? So according to that person, what, what, what should happen now? What should we read about when we, when we go on in this story of the record of the rich man and Lazarus? What should be going on? They're just non-existent, according to this person, right? They died. Both of them died. So they should just be gone, right? Until the resurrection, according to these idiots. Look at the next verse. It says, And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Does it sound like he's just unconscious? Is that what it sounds like? Not even close. Not even close. It says that in hell he lift up his eyes being in torments. So notice he's dead. This man is dead. But he is in hell. He is lifting up his eyes. He's awake. He's alert. He's feeling pain. And he's in torments. And he cried and said. Notice he's speaking. He's yelling out. Father Abraham have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, he goes on, and even the, uh, so he sees Lazarus. So Lazarus is dead too, but guess what? He's awake, he's alert, he knows what's going on. But he's dead. These people don't understand the definition of death. We, do, you know, we believe in the mortality of the soul, but when the soul dies, that person doesn't cease to exist. That's the, you have the wrong definition. You have a pagan definition of death. You don't understand what the Bible, said, what the Bible means when it says death. You don't get what biblical death is. Death does not mean unconsciousness. You know who teaches that death means unconsciousness? The Jews. Judaism teaches that. So I wonder where these bunch of you know, Judaizers and Hebrew roots are getting this garbage from. They're getting it from the Talmud. That's where they're getting it from. Isn't it funny too? And they try to call you a pagan. They try to say you as a Christian are a pagan. And oh, you're... You're, you know, you're uh, 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 believing in and worshiping and, and practicing Babylonian paganism. Do you know what the Talmud's called? Exactly, the Babylonian Talmud. So isn't it kind of funny that actually where they're getting these false teachings from and saying, hey, we need to go back to Hebrew roots. Hey, look at what the, the Talmud says. Oh, you mean the Babylonian Talmud? Sounds like you're the stinking pagan, not me. I can show you in the Bible, in New Testament scripture, written by the disciples, that death actually means 
that your life just ceased on this earth. But guess what? Your soul goes on to exist. And that people that are dead can lift up their eyes and they're in torments. You know what they would say? Oh, that's the immortality of the soul. He's dead, fool, according to the Bible. The Bible says he's dead. You don't believe the Bible. That's the problem here. You don't believe the Bible. I believe the Bible. He died. And they oh, that's just a parable. Really? Show me another parable where a real uh, uh, character is mentioned. Abraham is mentioned here. You don't have another parable in the Bible. You don't tell parables and insert real people. You don't do that. You always make up. People say, oh, it says there's a certain beggar. That's the same style language. Yeah, there are other times when it talks about the rich man that is a real person. And he calls him a certain rich man. So that language is used in both cases. But you know what you never have in a, in a parable that we know are parables? You never have a single time where they actually mention they actually mention a real character. Someone that actually exists. You don't tell parables and insert real people. People don't do that. Do you know why? Because this is a real story about a real rich man. And he just doesn't give you the rich man's name. That's why he says certain rich man because he just doesn't give you his name. And Moses is even mentioned in this. this. This is not like a parable that's written in the New Testament at all. Because it's not a parable. It's about a real rich man that died and went to hell that's still in hell now. A real person that had a real soul and he took his last breath and, he, and there was a real guy named Lazarus. That's another person's name that's mentioned that you don't find in parables. A real, real factual person that had a life and a mother and a father that lived in history in this world. And he also died and he went to be with Abraham. And then you have <clears throat> a, uh, the rich man who died and went to hell. But guess what? He was dead, but he was still conscious. Because these people don't understand the definition of death. All these other, you know, in, in the book of Revelation, here's a bunch of other facts and proofs throughout Scripture that prove that you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that prove that the, uh, that the soul can die, but that it is still conscious. That a person dies, but they can still be conscious. This is where their problem is rooted. It's that they don't believe in the separation of the soul and the body. They don't believe that the soul can come out of or leave the body. This is called... You know, uh, uh, they don't believe in the insepar inseparability of the soul from the body. They believe that the body and the soul are inseparable. That they're one and the same. They don't believe they believe they're the same thing. Well, that's funny because in the book of Revelation, during a real, uh, a real uh, 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 record of what's going to take place on this earth, not a parable, it mentions souls under the altar in heaven crying to God. So notice they're in heaven. They're called souls. They're actually given white robes. Notice how the soul oftentimes is depicted like very similar to the person. The Bible teaches that it's just like the person. Still has a tongue, eyes, mouth. They're able to see. They're able to feel pain. Right? Um, and, this, and that story that we just read about Abraham, that actually corroborates with Scripture elsewhere. That Abraham was... Abraham obviously physically on this earth was dead at the time that that parable was told. And he's still dead now as far as his physical body, his physical life on this earth. But you know Jesus told the Jews, he said that Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad. Notice that. So was Abraham conscious when Jesus' day came? He was. And he rejoiced to see the day and was glad. Notice that. Why? Because he's in heaven. Because where did the... Where did the, uh, um, the beggar go, Lazarus? To be in Abraham's bosom, in paradise, in heaven. Makes perfect sense. Also, Jesus told the Jews, he said that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And after he had just said that he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Saying what? They're not dead, they're alive. How does that make sense to the man that says, oh, you believe in the immortality of the soul? 
That, yeah, I believe the immortality of the soul of those that put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're right. And they are going to live forever because they have everlasting life. How do you make sense of that? There are so many problems with that. You know, like Jesus says in John chapter number 11, he says, Whosoever believes it shall never die. According to you, that's not true. Uh, then you have other examples. Moses and Elijah from the Old Testament are present on the Mount of Transfiguration. What's going on there? That's confusing for the, for the man that criticizes biblical Christianity and says, Oh, you just believe in the immortality of the soul. Uh, and what's funny about that is Elijah went up in a whirlwind to heaven. Moses died on the mount when he, looked, when he was looking and peering into to see the land of Canaan. He died, and the Bible says that God buried him. And it says that he was gathered. It uses a specific phrase. It says he was gathered unto his people. Well, many you know, uh, biblical scholars they're referred to as have, have, have misidentified that, that statement because it's used a lot of places elsewhere about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, because when those people are buried, they're buried with their family, right? Like oftentimes people are buried with their family today. Well, they would all be buried, the whole family would be buried together in the same location. And people have misidentified that statement as being that they were gathered unto his people means that his body was brought and buried with the rest of his family, his people, right? Well, you can't do that with Moses because Moses was buried by himself. God buried him and no one even knows the place of it. So what's it mean he was gathered unto his people? His people in heaven, the Israel of God. The children of God. He was gathered unto his people. That's what that means. Um, and then you have the phrase all throughout the Old Testament where people give up the ghost. You know what that's telling you? The spirit leaves the body. In 1 Kings chapter number 17, when Elijah raises that young boy from the dead, Elijah prays and says, Lord, let this child's soul come into him again. And people say, oh, that's just Elijah speaking. Then do you know what it says right after that? The Holy Spirit says, and the soul of the child came into him again. So you know what that is? That is a verse. It's game over, buddy. The soul is separable from the body. The soul can leave the body. The soul does leave the body. And that's what that's talking about. They gave up the ghost. Their souls go to heaven. Abraham was in heaven. He saw Jesus' day. Abraham's soul was in heaven. Just like, you know what went down to hell? Of the rich man, his soul went down to hell. The soul, it's a biblical teaching, Old Testament and New, that the soul leaves the body at death. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 is where I want to show you this. Look at the clear just statements even in epistles. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 verse number 8. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Notice he says to be absent. He's saying, I want to be absent from my body. What's he saying? Who we really are is our soul. That's who we are. That's our person, that's our personality, that's our being. I mean, that's you. That's intrinsically who you are as your soul. That's why if you've ever been to a funeral and you've walked up and you've seen someone there lying dead, it doesn't look like them. You can tell, like, this person's gone. They're not there. You know, it's an odd thing. Like, you can tell that whatever made them tick is gone. Like, that's not, like, I've seen many people, because my dad had a huge family. And my wife said she's been to like one funeral until she met me and she's been to like 50 since she's met me. And it just so happened to be about the time when I was like 15 to like 25 that that generation was dying off. I mean like four of my dad's brothers, I mean so many uncles, aunts, I literally have probably been to, what would you say, 30, 
funerals between 15 and 25. I was at tons of them before that too, not that many, but I've probably been to over 50 just of my family members. And every time I walk up to see my uncle lying in the, fu in, in, uh, the casket, I get there and it's not my uncle. I can tell he's not here. He's gone. You know why? Because he, that's his soul, is absent from his body. You can tell that's not him. It doesn't look like him. It's because what actually is him, his person, is taken out of that body. That's just the shell that we have. It's just our earthly tabernacle. Look at verse chapter, uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, talking about our body, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in heaven. It's talking about our resurrected body that we'll receive. Notice what it says right here. This is super interesting and super important. For in this we groan, earnestly, de earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that we being clothed, we shall not be found naked. Now I want you to, what does he mean naked? What was he talking about coming off of us? The earthly house of this body. Do you know how you would be naked? Just your soul. And the body's taking off of it. Taken off of it. And it's just your soul there. Do you know how you would be clothed upon with the, with the, the uh, eternal? How is it worded? Eternal in the heavens. The house not made with hands. Eternal in the heavens. Do you know how you would be clothed? Having your resurrected new body. But you would be naked if it's just your soul. But guess what? You're there. And he's explaining that this does happen. And then that's why he says in verse number 8, he says, And willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Real quickly, turn to Philippians chapter number 1. Another example is, um, there's so many of them, I'm not even going to hit all of them. Jesus on the, on the cross, what does he say to the thief? He says, Today, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Today. Now, According to the man, it's like, oh, you believe in the immortality of the soul. According to that person, what would happen to the thief? That very day, would he be in paradise? No. He would have died, and he would have just laid, they would take his body and lay it in the grave, and he's just unconscious and not existent for a very long period of time. Right? And then what happens? And then he's resurrected, and then he gets to go to paradise. It's like, Jesus, you're a stinking liar. But is that, what did Jesus say? If they were right, he would have lied. But what did Jesus say? Say, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. That very day when that thief took his last breath, he, he gave up the ghost, his soul left his body. And do you know where he went? He went to heaven to be with God. Because Jesus is God. Philippians 1, chapter 1, verse 21. I want to rush through the rest of this. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose I wot not. So notice he says, but if I live in the flesh. Saying you can live out of the flesh. You could be dead and your body, your soul could leave uh, the flesh. Then he says in verse 24, Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. So he wants to abide in the flesh. What does that mean? That he can leave the flesh. Just like 2 Corinthians 5 said that you can be absent from the body. So last point. Let's go through this very quickly. <clears throat> turn to... Um, turn, just go to 1 Timothy chapter number 3. 1 Timothy chapter number 3. I'm only going to have you go one place for this point and then we'll go to our last verse. 1 Timothy chapter number 3. The other point that they bring up is, oh, you know, and Brian Denlinger, who's a complete idiot, he brings this up. Yeah, uh, you guys meet in Babel buildings. You guys meet because it's Babylonian paganism. This comes from, you know, uh, uh, 
the pagan practices, meeting in a building. That's what he's saying. The fact that we meet in a building, that that's pagan. And he tries to teach that you must meet in a house in New Testament practices. You must, the church has to meet in a house and this practice came from paganism. Okay? Well, first off, what we need to understand is that the church is not a building. The church is a congregation. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now I'm going to read to you from Acts chapter number 7 because I want you to notice there that the, the church of the living God, that's the congregation. That's what that means. All throughout the Old Testament, the word congregation is used, the word assembly is used. Then in the New Testament... The word church is used. There's a quotation from the Old Testament where David says in the Old Testament, In the midst of the congregation will I sing praise unto thee. Then, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, that was Psalm 22, 22. In Hebrews 2, chapter 2, verse 12, it says, In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. The word church means congregation. So when we're talking about the church, we aren't talking about a church building. So if people try to attack that, that again, that's a false connection because we don't believe that. That's a straw man. We understand and know that the church is the congregation. And we know that this is a, just a church building. It's just a building that we come to to meet in. But the church did not start e existing. I want to make an important point here. The, the church did not begin to exist in the New Testament. The church existed in the Old Testament. Acts chapter number 7, verse number 37 says this. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai. So notice what was in the wilderness. The church. The what? The congregation. Now, these people, this is the, the point that they, this is the most ridiculous attack that they make of all of them. Because at least that they can try to twist and say, like, and a lot of people don't have answers for it, even though it's stupid. They're like, oh, you meet on Sunday, you're worshiping the sun god. And a lot of Christians that are unstudied and don't know anything, they're just like, oh, shoot, you know, I didn't know that. Right? People just aren't. They're not aware of these things. They're not knowledgeable of, of these types of things. It's ridiculous, of course. We meet that on that day because it's the first day of the week. But this point is even more ridiculous than that. This claim and false teaching is even more ridiculous than that. And it's the claim that if you meet in a building, that that is a Babylonian practice. They, have no, they don't even have anything that they twist. Do you know what they go to? The Tower of Babel. That's why they call them Babel buildings. And they say, who always build uh, buildings and temples and things for their gods to come and worship in? You, you know, pagans do that. Now, that's not true. Now, pagans do do that, but it's not only pagans. That is, a, that is also a misrepresentation. The church existed in the Old Testament. We just saw that in Acts chapter number 7. He was in the church in the wilderness with Moses as the pastor. Now I want to ask you this question. Where did the church in the wilderness meet? I want you to think about that. Where did the church in the wilderness meet? They met in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was once then replaced. And once the tabernacle was replaced, where did the church in the Old Testament meet? In the, where would they congregate and assemble? What was the house of God? The temple. So I want you to notice that when they congregated and when they assembled, did they all just gather together? Did all of Israel come together into a house? Did the church just come together and fit into a house somewhere? No, it was an Old Testament practice that they would go into a building. So you can even look at the Old Testament. 
You can look at the Old Testament. I'm not going to have time to turn this other passage, but you can look at the Old Testament and we can see that God allowed the practice for them to go and to meet in a building and to have church service, if you will, and congregate. Now, if that was intrinsically sinful, do you think God would have ordained it and allowed it to happen in the Old Testament? No. No, that, it just shows that you're just making crap up and you're not even trying to think logically. So if we even look at this logically, God ordained and had them set to where what they did as far as their ordinances was that's where they congregated, was in a building, not in a house, like someone lives there. Of course, the priests live there. And a lot of times, you know, the pastor will live in the church and like a parson is disconnected too. But it wasn't someone's just their home and just their house. It was a building. That's what they did. Do you know why? Because it was a massive congregation that came. And it wouldn't be able to fit them. They had to have a building so that everybody could fit. Well, in Acts chapter number um, 1, it talks about the all of the, the disciples coming together. And it says that they're in a large upper room. Do you know how many people are there? 120 people. Now, I personally do not believe that they were meeting in someone's house in the upper room that could fit 120 people in a congregation. I don't know. You know, the hall's got a house and it's 2,700 square feet and there's nowhere. They don't have an upper room that you could fit 120 people in and have a service. That's a pretty large house. I don't think that I know a single person that has a house. Even mansions, because they don't have one single room like that. Even mansions. Now, number one, you don't have a single verse, a single passage, anything in the Bible ever that teaches that buildings are pagan and that only pagans had buildings. That's stupid. Now, do we have to have church in a building? Is it okay to have church in a house? Of course. But there's nothing wrong with having it in a building. And this comes from this attitude of this everything is pagan. And do you know the types of people that fall into this? Self-righteous, pious people. Because they want to try to nitpick every little stupid thing and say, Oh, that's pagan. You shouldn't be doing that. That's pagan. Because they want to be able to stand on a pedestal and look down upon other people. This, this everything's pagan garbage does not come from the Bible. You know the things that are pagan? You know the things that you shouldn't do? Things that are against the commandments of God. And when you start saying, hey, you shouldn't have a building, you know what you're doing? You're teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Do you know what's coupled with that? Jewish fables. It's not a coincidence that these same people that try to teach their own doctrines for commandments of men, they try to make up their own garbage. Oh, meeting in a building is pagan. Meeting in a building is, is, is not of God. It's not of New Testament Christianity. Those same people teach what? Jewish fables. Because that's what Jewish fables are. And they try, to, they try to project it upon the Bible and New Testament Scripture when it's not taught anywhere. You can't find this, this type of garbage and these teachings anywhere. Go to Galatians chapter number 1 and we're going to end there. It comes from these Judaizing type of Christianity. The biggest poison to Christianity still to this day is Judaism. That is the biggest poison to biblical Christianity to this day. Do you know the number one enemy in the New Testament scriptures that you read about is? It's not the Roman government. It's not, you know, the Romans throwing Christians to lions. That didn't play, take place until years, hundreds of years later. Do you know who the number one enemy of a New Testament Christian was? right at the time the scriptures were penned down. The Jews. Do you know what they're called in the book of Revelation, which is projected upon end times even? The synagogue of Satan. Do you know what the headquarters of, you know, the Antichrist, which where all persecution of Christianity in end times is going to radiate from? Do you know where it's at? Jerusalem.
That's because from the time of Christ, even until now, the biggest enemy that has existed of New Testament Christianity is Judaism and the religion of the Jews. And I want to show you here at the very end, we're just going to look at this passage here in Galatians 1, that the religion of the Jews is not Old Testament Christianity. It's Jewish fables. The religion of the Jews, they weren't worshiping and the Father. Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you believe me. They didn't believe the Old Testament. If, you, if, if, if he is the God of the Old Testament, they would have believed on him when he came. They rejected it. And it, what it is, is it's actually Babylonian paganism. The Talmud is the book of the Jews. That is their practices and their beliefs. And Babylonian uh, 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 paganism is actually Judaism. They are the ones that are the pagans, and they are the ones that are teachings uh, uh, of Jewish fables. Look at what Paul said in Galatians chapter number 1, in verse number 13. He said, For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion. So notice, is he in the Jews' religion now? No. He said, You heard of my conversation or my life in time past in the Jews' religion. And then he says this, How that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God. Notice that the Jews' religion is persecuting the church of God. Keep reading. And wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Notice that that is polar opposite and it's against the teachings of the Bible. Why? Because it's paganism. The religion of the Jews and the Jewish fables that are taught and, the, and the, the Talmud, it's actually paganism. And the immortality of the soul, that comes from Jewish fables. It's paganism. This teaching of, of, you know, of the building garbage and all this crap, paganism. This teaching of, oh, it's Yeshua, it's not Jesus, where does it come from? It's, it's Jew, the Jews' religion infiltrating, trying to infiltrate biblical Christianity and they try to convince people that, hey, you can have Christianity and the Jews' religion. Just mix them together. And they, they did this even at the time of Paul. Chapter 2, verse 4. And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. That's exactly what's still going on today. And you need to be aware of this. This is a big deal where they're trying to you know, infiltrate Biblical Christianity. You know what they want to teach? Jewish fables. And those that are in the Jews' religion, those that are you know, uh, uh, trying to Judaize Christianity, oftentimes they will look at you and say, hey, what you believe is actually paganism. It's not biblical Christianity. When it's, when it's the other way around. And we need to not give heed to Jewish fables and we need to reject their paganism, which, is, it, which derives from and comes from the Babylonian Talmud. And it is, of course, the doctrines of men, and it's devilish, and it comes from the synagogue of Satan. The biggest poison, the last statement I'm going to make, the biggest poison to Christianity at the time of Paul, and at the time of Jesus, and, and, and the disciples living, was the Jewish religion. And there's no difference today. And you have all of these Christians who worship Israel and worship Zionism, and they're try, they try to purport this Zionistic doctrine that's the devil trying to creep in and infiltrate Christianity and change Christianity and say, oh, you know, put on a prayer shawl, do all of these different things. The biggest today, the biggest poison and toxin to biblical Christianity, again, is the Jews' religion because they're able to get their foot in the door. And you know what they do? They actually start teaching the Jewish fables 
and this type of you know paganism. They're the pagans, not us. We can prove what we believe from Scripture, and you need to be able to do so. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, dear Lord, for all the Scripture that we can use to... to, to teach and to prove why we do what we do and how it's laid out so clearly that even if we weren't, we didn't have traditions, we could study the Bible and we could read and, and learn, dear God, what you would have for us. We ask you that you would uh, help us never to fall into this Zionist type of trap uh, where, where uh, you know, we're trying to look to and, 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 and reverence the Jew, but rather let's reverence Jesus Christ and your word. We love you so much. Just be with us the rest of the day. And in Jesus Christ's name, amen.